Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Biblical Conversations is an invitation to a new way of thinking about Scripture. Typically, we come to Scripture looking for answers or to find wisdom, the Word of the Lord, or to find insight into the human condition. And while those are great questions to ask of Scripture, this podcast is about a new way of thinking about the Bible, a new way of looking at Scripture as an extended series of conversations, biblical conversations, conversations that are often in conflict and just as often finding conflict resolution. The Bible, like Jesus himself, is fully human and fully divine. And here we're going to explore the human side of this equation as a portal to deeper appreciation and deeper insight into the Bible as the very Word of God. The Bible was written by many different people with different ideas and different agendas. The authors of Scripture were people like you and me about the task of understanding this Yahweh who led them up out of Egypt and into the land of promise and who comes to us in the person of Jesus, our Christ. The Bible, as a fully human document, conveys ideas about God that are in conflict with other ideas about God in the Bible. The Bible is a human story about how these ancient people of faith with conflicting notions and competing understandings learned how to resolve conflicts and develop communities built on shalom. And this is why this is so important. We still live in community and we still have conflict, conflict that's getting worse by the day. We still seek shalom. We need to find shalom, God's peace. There's an art to learning to live within the bonds of peace and by divine grace in blessed community. And I believe that the most exalted, at least for me, the most transformative way we can experience the scriptures as, as the very words of God is to grapple with them in all their humanity. I've come to love the Bible even more passionately as God's word because it comes to us in the dust of history, the grind of politics, and the gore of warfare. It conveys a history generated by people of faith on a complex and meandering journey of redemption and grace. The words of these particular people have become for us the very word of God, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a gift that points the way toward reclaiming blessed communities of shalom today and to God's eternal kingdom. Are you up for a new way of engaging in the holy scriptures of our faith? Let's have a biblical conversation. Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, an honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. In this podcast, we're talking about the question, is America a Christian nation? I was asked to deliver some remarks at a forum at our university the other day on this topic in association with uh, Constitution Day. And we picked this question and had a look at it from several different angles, and we had a lot of fun with it. But it occurred to me after we were done that uh, this would be appropriate for the podcast because in it there is a tension that develops between two different perspectives on the proper Christian posture toward government. 
And so I thought, well, this is, it fits the tone of biblical conversations and it's uh, something that I prepared for Constitution Day, so let's give this a try. So in this uh, episode, we're talking about the question, is America a Christian nation? And in that context, we'll look at a specific instance where there's quite a differing opinion between Romans 13 and Revelation 13 on the proper Christian posture toward the government. So I really hope you enjoy this. I think it's a lot of fun. I had a great time presenting it at the panel discussion the other day, and uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Is America a Christian nation? What would it mean for the United States of America to be a Christian nation? Let's think about that for a minute. On one hand, it seems obvious that it is because because we have a lot of Christians in this country and uh, Christianity has had a large influence on our national development and national consciousness. Judeo-Christian values have had a big part in the development of our legal system and politics. But what would it mean to be a Christian nation? Technically, we probably have to say that we're a secular nation. We're a nation that does not affirm the establishment of any state church. There's no official recognition that Christianity is the religion of the United States. And probably something like that would be necessary for us to be called a Christian nation, full stop. And also, it's important to recognize, just as we get started talking about this, that the fact that our nation doesn't specifically affirm the recognition or, or recognize one church as being the state church, the, the formal approved state church, that fact has actually produced an environment where Christianity and all religions have been able to thrive. A lot of Christians feel real threatened by the government as if government's trying to stamp them out. But the fact is Christianity has been able, as other religions have, has been able to thrive in this country. And that seems to be unambiguously the case. But what would it mean to be a Christian nation? I think the answer to that question is unambiguously, unambiguously no. The United States isn't a Christian nation primarily because I don't think Jesus intended to establish an earthly kingdom or nation in any specific case. In other words, Jesus did not intend to establish a single nation as opposed to other nations or a single kingdom, which is be the language they might use, as opposed to other kingdoms. Now, Jesus did express extreme interest in the kingdom of God, and he talked about it with great regularity, but often he would refer to it as the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not very helpful because we're certainly not in heaven. Well, actually, when Jesus uses that language, he's probably using it in the Jewish sense of being reluctant to use the divine name. And so there's a certain circumlocution that develops about not saying God too much. And so uh, so some of that kingdom of heaven language may arise from that uh, Jewish background. But still, it's very clear that Jesus didn't intend to establish a specific nation or kingdom of any sort. For instance, he said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And when Jesus earlier in John's gospel multiplies the bread and the loaves, the loaves and the fish, 
he, uh, it says some people came at that time to make him king. But it says that Jesus, when he perceived that they were coming to make him king, he withdrew to be by himself. So Jesus, in that case, would have had a clear opportunity to establish a kingdom where he could bring this, uh, these worldly, these God, godly values into play. But Jesus didn't want to do that because he wanted to establish a kingdom of God that transcended national boundaries. Jesus wasn't interested in a specific location. Jesus wanted to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not that Jesus isn't interested in establishing Eden on earth. Jesus does. In fact, that's what he's about, but not in the sense of a specific nation status, nation state that would be like the right one. That's not what Jesus is interested in. Jesus is interested in this narrative agenda whereby he's thinking of God's ownership of the world. God created this world and created it beautiful and created it good. And yet we fell into sin and God intends to recreate, reestablish this world in which God's rule will be uh, will will be enacted and God's ways will be and, and, and the, the effects of sin will be destroyed and God's kingdom will come. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be the focus of every one of our prayers, Jesus says. But it's clearly a transnational kingdom. Jesus broke down national barriers when he went up to Syrophoenicia to minister to the people of that place. And so in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the lamb purchasing those from every tongue and tribe and language, or specifically tribe, language, people, and nation, when it says that, it's giving us a clue that early Christians understood this as not a specific kingdom like Rome or Parthia, but it's a, it's a something that transcends national boundaries and nation and, and uh, languages. So I don't think the concept of a Christian nation can square with the Jesus facts. Jesus clearly intends to build a kingdom of God, but one that transcends national politics. If Jesus didn't intend to create a specific nation, if he wasn't interested in nation building, then the whole notion of a Christian nation seems to be a non-starter from the get-go. So right from the start, it seems like Jesus did not intend to create a Christian nation, and so we should probably be very reluctant to call the United States a Christian nation. There is one biblical text that has often been cited in the in this regard, not to say that there's any biblical passage that really indicates that Jesus wanted to establish a nation of any sort, but a, 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 a passage that it provides strong uh, a strong command to Christians to support their national government. And someone could uh, could take a passage like this and use it in support of the notion of America being a Christian nation. You could say, look, if Paul is this supportive of the government of Rome, how much more should we be supportive of our national government in the United States? And so, okay, the passage is uh, Romans chapter 13, and I'm going to read the first just four verses. Let every soul be in subjection to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are ordained by God. 
Therefore, he who resists the authority withstands the ordinance of God, and those who withstand will receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. Do you desire to have no fear of the authority? Do that which is good, and you will have praise from the same." For he is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger for wrath to him who does evil. So it sounds like a pretty forthright uh, claim that Christians ought to be uh, enthusiastic even about their support for the government, enthusiastic and 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 without question or without challenge, we shouldn't resist the government in any way. And it uses the word resist repeatedly in this passage. But I believe that if you really think deeply about what Paul is saying here, we can find and discern that it doesn't really spell out a full throttle support for government, which could be applied to our government even more. It doesn't say that quite the way it may seem on the surface. And let me explain why that is the case. Just back up to point out that this is the passage that uh, in June or in the summer of 2018, the attorney general at that time, Jeff Sessions, got into a lot of difficulty for quoting this passage in support of the uh, Trump administration policy of separating children from their families at the border. This passage has been used historically in support of slavery, right, Uh, which would make sense. If the government approves slavery, then who are you to challenge it? So the passage has been used to support slavery. And during the American Revolution, this passage was quoted in support of the loyalists, the ones that are loyal to King George, because uh, you shouldn't challenge the government that you have. The reason why a lot of scholars think that it's not quite what it seems on the surface is because of this. This passage clearly sits very uncomfortably in its context. Scholars are increasingly aware, and a lot of people know this, it's talked about a lot these days. Scholars are very aware of just how anti-Roman Paul's gospel really was. I mean, Paul's gospel is, gospel is radioactive in certain ways politically, and Paul would have had to have known it because, uh, because his message could be summarized by saying something like this. If I'm the Apostle Paul, I might say, I proclaim to you the gospel that Jesus the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, is the world's true Lord and Savior. All of us are called by God to place our hope and our trust in Jesus. Okay, sounds like a pretty pretty straightforward explanation of what Paul was preaching. And yet... This flies directly in the face of what you could call the Roman gospel or the gospel that was being proclaimed by the Roman Empire that time. The language in it is very similar to the language that's being used at this time by the Roman Empire. First of all, the word gospel, euangelion in Greek, is a word that's not used a lot by the Romans or or in uh, in the, it's not used a lot in the world at that time. It's kind of a of a specialized word. And the word is is associated with the proclamation of Caesar's lordship. 
Caesar at that time was called and thought to be the son of God, the savior of the world, the world's true Lord and savior. Um, Just put this in context, right around a generation before Paul wrote these words, or even more than that, about 60 years actually, before Paul wrote these words, the Roman Empire was going through a shift. In the period of the Republic, they didn't believe that their emperors were God. They didn't have emperors. They had consuls that were shifting on a regular basis in order to prevent people from uh, exaggerating the importance of any one of them. But when the uh, Julius Caesar started to receive divine honors, or at least he wasn't rejecting them, as a lot of people felt he should, it's one of the reasons why he was assassinated, because people were thought he was beginning to think he was a god. And then after he was assassinated, his uh, adopted son Octavian eventually became emperor, and it was called Caesar Augustus. And the Halley's Comet appeared in the skies at that period of time and uh, you know, was, uh, got a lot of attention. And Caesar Augustus proclaimed that that was the soul of Julius Caesar ascending to heaven as a god. And so that, what does that do? It makes him the son of the God. And, um, and all Romans were called upon to place their faith in this Savior. He was a Savior because he saved the world from the destructive uh, results of this civil war that they were going through. And so he de- finally defeated his enemies and brought peace to the Roman world. And people felt like he was the Savior of the world. He established a whole new world. His, his birthday was considered like a day of celebration of the world's true Lord. And there are proclamations made of, of, the, the, of this uh, the, celebrating the birthday of Julius Caesar that, or Caesar Augustus that sound like the Christian gospel. I mean, if you took out Caesar Augustus and put in Jesus Christ, it would, you know, make perfect sense. And so Christians recognized that they were called upon to recognize Caesar's lordship and to show that recognition by offering incense to the genius of Caesar in public on public holidays. And that was something Christians were loath to do. And Paul had to have recognized just how insurrectionist his gospel would have seen. Jewish revolt was percolating around this period of time and gaining steam, and Paul would have wanted to have distanced himself from that. Paul, of course, knew that any indication by the Romans that Christianity was involved in insurrection and it was a call to arms, Paul would have been aware of the fact that that would be the closing of the curtains. The Romans would have just destroyed them very easily and would have been delighted to do it. And so Paul knows the Roman government is looking, uh, will look at this gospel that he's proclaiming as a potentially insurrectionist message. And so Paul, in this point in in Romans chapter 13, he takes a turn and he's like saying, wanting to make it painfully clear that Christian Christianity isn't calling people to arms, that it's not meant that way. And so when he uses the word resist here repeatedly, uh, he's probably using it in a kind of a technical sense, which is well known in the literature that this word very often means 
resist in terms of armed rebellion. It's a common meaning of the word. So when he writes these words, he has in mind producing a text that they could show to the Roman officers when they come knocking on the door and say, what is this evil and pernicious gospel that you Christians are preaching? Don't you realize the world already has a true Lord? One true Lord who proved it when he defeated all of his enemies. And and so you're to worship the true Lord of the world. And Christians knew that the world couldn't have two true Lord and Saviors. They knew that, and the Romans did as well. And they they knew that one of them had to be a false Savior of the world. And so Christians, Paul, but Paul is not wanting there to be uh, any inkling uh, that Christianity is looking for a fight here, that Christians are not looking for a fight. And Paul makes that abundantly clear as he goes on and commands people to pay their taxes, which is a real indication that we're not really about insurrection. If you'll let us just live our lives, we'll be good citizens as much as we can. We'll pay our taxes. We'll not uh, call people to arms against Rome. But this, But the fact is, this gospel that Christians are preaching is political dynamite in its day. And Paul is wanting to say, actually, it's not intended to encourage armed rebellion. We're not even interested in not paying our taxes. We're willing to do that. And Paul intends here to provide cover, not to say necessarily that Christians ought to be all enthusiastic about the government of Rome, not to say necessarily that, but to provide a strong text that can be shown to Roman officials when they come knocking on the door that Christianity is really not a message of political insurrection. Okay, let's summarize what we've been saying about the what Paul's message is in Romans chapter 13. Paul is probably not making a full stop, you know, statement that Christians ought to be enthusiastic supporters of the government of Rome. He's probably saying something more like, in spite of the way it may look, we're not actually about insurrection. We should realize that government has an important role and we ought to actually pay our taxes. He's probably saying something more like that. But I want to also talk about Revelation chapter 13, really 13 through 17. Because in the book of Revelation, which is so interesting, Romans 13 to Revelation 13, in the book of Revelation, we find that Christians were quite able to be very brutally and and uh, unstintingly critical of the government of Rome. In spite of what Paul says in Romans 13, Christians were very able and certainly interested in being uh, deeply critical of the government. And it could well be the case that Paul wrote um, wrote Romans 13 before the real persecution of Christians began and that Revelation 13 is written after that persecution was well up and running. But in Revelation chapter 13, I just challenge you to go and look at this on your own. Um, and and uh, I'm not going to get into the details of this because you could easily get swamped, but I just want to point out that scholars broadly agree now that the book of Revelation is actually about a, a piece of Christian literature that's meant to express resistance and and 
the strongest, like shaking your fist up at the government and saying what you are doing is wrong, what you are doing is evil, and God is going to win this dangerous game you're playing while you guys think that you're this Lord and have um, mastery over the whole world while everything looks like it's in your favor, God stands opposed to you and Babylon will fall. And so when it says Babylon, Babylon, the mighty has fallen, that's just a code for Rome. How do we know that that's a code for Rome? Well, it describes this beast coming up out of the ocean inspired by a satanic dragon. It says it has seven horns and seven and, and sorry, 10 horns and seven heads. So what could that be about? Well, in uh, chapter 17, it describes a little bit more information. And in that place, chapter 17, verse 9, it says that the seven uh, heads of the beast represent the seven hills on which the prostitute sits. Okay, so the, the beast later says it's mounted by a prostitute, a prostitute riding the beast. The prostitute almost certainly represents the goddess Roma. In other words, Romans like to picture them, their goddess, their primary goddess as this beautiful woman who's so elegant and stately. And, and, and the Christians are saying that that is not true. What the, what the goddess Roma is really, a pro, really is a prostitute that's prostituted herself to all the governments of the world and, and has, is worthy of no respect at all, no more than a prostitute would be worthy of respect. And the prostitute is sitting on this, uh, this dragon, or sorry, this beast. <clears throat> and the beast, sa it says that the beast has seven heads. And in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 9, it says that those heaven, seven heads represent the seven hills of the city on which the woman sits. So Rome is famously the city on seven hills. That's clearly a reference to Rome. So that's one reference. The other reference is actually found back in chapter 13 itself, the last verse, where it says the number of the beast is let the wise be understanding. It uses this real great uh, language of hidden wisdom. Here is wisdom. He who has understanding, let him calculate the number of the beast for that it is the number of a man. Its number is 666. The name Nero could be spelled two different ways. If you spelled it one way, you would get, uh, you would, uh, let me back up a little bit. The name, people in the ancient world love to do what was called, what we call today, gematria. A uh, gematria is where you take uh, numbers of the alphabet and then you, uh, you turn them into, sorry, letters of the alphabet and turn them into numbers. So you take letters of the alphabet and turn them into numbers. So even today in Hebrew, if you open up a, a copy of the Talmud, you'll see that, um, that page one is Aleph, page two is Beit. Then you get to Yod, which is 10. So Yod Aleph, which would be 11. Yod Beit would be 12. So they use letters as numbers. People love to take let names and turn them into numbers. The name Kaiser Nero could be spelled two different ways. Six, six, six sorry. Uh, and, and if you did made a gematria out of it, in one way, it would spell 666. Six, six. But if you did it the other way, it spelled 616. 
Now, here's what's really shocking. If you take a look at the oldest manuscript of Revelation that we have, when it gives us the number of the beast, it actually gives us 616 instead of 666, which is a real dead ringer that we're talking about Kaiser Nero here. The name of Nero could be spelled either 666 or 616. And you have two different numbers given for the number of the beast. So this is clearly a reference to the first Roman emperor who really began to persecute Christianity. And uh, so there we are. There's very, very good reason to say that Christians were quite able to be ruthlessly critical of the Roman governmental system. Christians were not blithely going along saying, we've got to support the government. It's the government, so we've got to support them. Um, in spite of what Paul said in Romans chapter 13, Christians were, were at times ruthlessly critical. Not ruthless, because that sounds vicious. Actually, Christians are the, on the underbelly, represents the people that the Roman government is crushing and killing and eating. And uh, as the as a beast, right? That's why it's pictured as a beast. And so, um, and so Christians were quite able, in spite of what Paul says in Romans thirteen, to be very, very critical of the government of Rome. So, no, America is not a Christian nation because those words display confusion about the purposes and ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't intend to establish an earthly nation of any sort, and he made that crystal clear. So America is not a Christian nation, because not because of any fault in our governance or economy, but because the whole notion of being a Christian nation from start to finish is a category mistake. Jesus commands transcend national boundaries. Jesus redeems those from every tongue and tribe and nation and people, as Revelation claims. So to talk about a Christian nation of any sort is really to confuse the goals and purposes of Jesus' ministry. It's to trivialize the world-shaking and transformative character of Jesus' proclamation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, I certainly hope that was a helpful conversation for you. I'm looking forward to our next biblical conversation. I'll be having a conversation with David Hollis. David Hollis is the uh, director of the Wesley F Fellowship at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, David's an old friend of mine. We were served on staff at First United Methodist Church in Jackson, Tennessee, back a number of years ago before I came to Dakota Wesleyan University. And David went on to, uh, to his ministry at Belmont. I visited David. I was in Nashville and we had a great visit and spent some time in a coffee shop a few years back. And I've always just had a lot of respect for David. He's a really sharp guy, really a, a, a thoughtful disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be having conversation about the episode dealing with the inspiration of the Bible. And uh, it's called The Devil and the Bible. If you haven't listened to that episode, you may want to go back and listen to it before you move on to listening to uh, this episode with David. I'll summarize it uh, in 
in, in the episode with David, but, um, but just so you know what's going on. So we're uh, going to be moving on to a conversation with David Hollis in the next one. I do want to encourage you to, uh, to rate and review and subscribe and all of those things. They help us to, um, to get the word out about biblical conversations. I hope that it's been of interest to you and a helpful conversation today as we talked about Is America a Christian Nation? The Word of God is for and with the people of God. And so together, let's say thanks be to God.